Church, today we continue our study of the book of Romans. We find ourselves in Romans chapter 8. Over the next three weeks, we're going to camp out in this powerful chapter of sacred scripture. Today, I invite you to take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 8. I'll be reading in your hearing verses 1 to 17. And once you find your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence the public reading of God's holy word. Romans chapter 8, allow me to begin at verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, and that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin and sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation. But it's not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you do not receive the Spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you receive the Spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. For the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are God's children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, to the preaching, to the understanding and the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 is not only one of the greatest verses in all the Bible, it is a personal favorite. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is sublime in English. It is greater still in the ancient text. In the ancient Greek text, the structure of a typical sentence is usually written verb followed by the subject followed by the object. We don't write that way in English. No, in English, we typically start with the subject and then follow that up with the verb. And then after the verb, we say something about the object. 
But in the language of antiquity, the Greeks thought that the power can be found in the verbs. So they structured their sentence typically with the verb starting out. Now if the author wanted to emphasize a word that wasn't the verb, he would throw it at the beginning of the sentence as if to italicize it, underline it, bolden it, so it would jump off the page, grab the reader by the shirt collar. And in our passage of Romans chapter 8, verse 1, the first two words are no condemnation. It's almost as if the apostle writes it with a megaphone. I want you to know there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The word condemnation is a forensic term. It used in its judicial sense, it means punishment or doom. What the apostle is saying is that there is not one shred of doom and gloom, not one ounce of punishment and condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. I think that Romans chapter 8 is one of the most supreme chapters in all the Bible. It's a chapter that starts with this declaration of no condemnation. It's a chapter that ends with the promise of no separation. And in between, there are 39 verses that give way to great celebration. As you and I walk through this powerful chapter, we declare there is no condemnation. There will not be any separation. And all the while, we live our life in glorious celebration unto the Lord. This calls D. Martin Lloyd-Jones to say of Romans chapter 8, the major theme is the security of the believer. Now, I don't know. There may be a few of you who come into church this morning, and you just need a, you need a word of security. Maybe you think your world is turned upside down, topsy-turvy, inside out. And what you think you need more than anything else is just to know with a great deal of security and steadfastness that God is in control. And God's timing is impeccable, is it not? Here we are in Romans chapter 8, this great passage that declares there is now no condemnation. There is security for the believer of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now how do we get here? It wasn't too many chapters earlier where Paul said that no one is righteous, no not one. That whether you are a Jew or Gentile, male or female, rich or poor, there's no one who's righteous, no one who is innocent. We are sinful from the top of our head to the bottom of our feet. We are sinful to the core. We are totally depraved. We are wretches in the sight of God. So how can you go from being a declared wretch to being declared no shred of gloom and doom? How does that happen? And according to these 17 verses, the answer is twofold. For starters, we are in Christ. Secondly, the Spirit of God lives in us. So first and foremost, we are in Christ. And secondly, the Spirit of God is in us. Because of those two facts, we can declare with the apostle, there is therefore now no condemnation. Not one shred of gloom, not one ounce of punishment meted out against us. We have no condemnation. Let's take 
both of those facts in the order that I stated them. Number one, we are in Christ. I think that the best biblical way to talk about all of humanity is to divide them in one of two camps. People are either in Christ or they're outside of Christ. Throughout the Bible, that is the most accurate, authentic way to discriminate against individuals. Either they are in Christ or they are out of Christ. Now, over the last few weeks and months, there have been numerous demographics to describe you as a voting block in the presidential election. But can I tell you that the greatest demographic that can ever be stated about any of us is whether we are in Christ or out of Christ. Because we are born into sin, we are born outside of Christ. We are stillborn before the Lord. We are dead in our sin. And Paul has built a robust, accurate argument to tell us that the only way anybody who's outside of Christ can go inside of Christ is through faith. You remember in chapter 4? Where Paul said, the only way that God has ever saved anybody is by faith. Whether it was Abraham or David, whether it's you or me, it does not matter. The only way that anybody is declared innocent in God's sight is through faith in the accomplished work of God. For Abraham and David, we're looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. You and I, looking back upon the arrival of the Messiah. Regardless, we all set our gaze upon Calvary's hill. And it's only faith in the accomplished work of Jesus that saves any of us so that those who are outside of Christ can be deemed inside of Christ. In chapter 5, the apostle said, Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have been justified. That means not merely forgiven of sin, but declared innocent forever. That even though we are guilty, we take upon the innocence of Jesus so that there is a sweet swap of salvation. We give God our sin. He gives us the sanctification of the Savior. That when God looks upon us, if we are in Christ by faith, he sees the innocence of Jesus Christ being lived out in our lives. So we are declared innocent, both now and forevermore. We are justified through faith through the accomplished work of Jesus Christ. In our passage, verse three, Paul reminds us that the law was powerless. For what the law was powerless to do, God did by sending his son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. What the law was powerless to do, the law was never given to us as a means of salvation. For the law of God just merely reveals sin. It does not redeem us from sin. There's no way that the law of God or your obedience to the law of God can remove the sin stain of your life. No, the law was given not as a means of salvation, but to point us to the only one who can save us, the Lord Jesus himself. So Paul has told us that the law was powerless to save us. What the law was powerless to do, God did. The law was powerless to give salvation, but God has given salvation. And that salvation can only come through the giving of his son, Jesus. Paul describes him in verse 3 as one who came 
in the likeness of sinful man. Jesus was like us in the sense that he was fully human. He is unlike us in the sense that he is perfect. It's not that Jesus is a godly man of which there have been many. It's not that Jesus was a man who became God of which there have been none. But Jesus was and is the God-man. Perfect God, perfect human. Completely God, completely human. Jesus is the God-man. He came in the form of sinful humanity to be a sin offering. The reason Jesus was sent was not just to show us a better way to live. The reason Jesus was sent was to enable us to live because Jesus became a sin offering. Throughout the Old Testament, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And on a regular basis, lambs were executed and sacrificed in the hopes of pushing off God's wrath just a little bit longer. It is John who identifies Jesus as the Lamb of God who was slain before the very foundation of the world. That from God's perspective, Jesus was crucified on Calvary's cross before Genesis 1-1. That Jesus is the only way that any of us can be saved because he is a sufficient sin offering. He came to die so that we might live. He was bruised so we might be blessed. He was forsaken so we could be forgiven. Jesus came as a sin offering. It is God who gave Jesus so that we might be in Christ. Friend, if you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, he was buried on the third day, he was raised from the dead, you are in Christ. If you believe that there is no way you can save yourself, not by works, not by merit, but only by the grace of God, then you are in Christ. If you believe that you were dead in your sin, but God has made you alive in Christ Jesus, then you are in Christ. Christ. If you believe that God sent his son, and we call him Jesus, he came to love and heal and forgive. He bled and died to buy my pardon and an empty grave is there to prove that my Savior lives, then you are in Christ. If you're trusting Jesus for your salvation and no one else, then you are in Christ. The way that we can declare the promise that there is no condemnation for us it's first and foremost, we have to be in Christ. And the only way you get in Christ is by faith, trusting and believing that Jesus paid a sin debt he did not owe because you have a sin debt you cannot pay. And Jesus sufficiently and Jesus forever paid your debt for all of your sins, past, present, and future. When you stop and think about the salvation that God gives, it is given by grace alone. The Protestant reformers had a motto, uh, this motto that has been passed down through the ages, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone. That that's the only way that anybody goes from out of Christ to in Christ. It's a grace gift. And I don't know about you, but I'm astounded by grace. I mean, grace literally blows my socks off. I mean, when I think about grace, I know it is matchless. I know it's magnificent. I know it's massive. I know it's unconditional. I know it's un, unending. I, I know that it is uh, just un, unimaginable. I mean, this grace is astounding. And I'm shocked not only by the grace that God gives, but I'm also shocked when grace is displayed in earthbound relationships. Are you ever shocked 
by grace? Today I want to introduce you to a lady named Lynn Wilson. Several years ago, she worked with Jane Ellen at a store in Kentucky. And Lynn and her family liked to go to a particular restaurant named Culver's. They liked the food and they would go there as a family on a regular basis. And after one trip to Culver's, they made their way home and Lynn discovered that she had lost her purse. She knew that she had it as she went into the restaurant. It had to be there. She called and frantically asked if they would look for the purse. Have you ever lost anything of value? Maybe it's a purse or a wallet, a diamond ring, a five-year-old child. I mean, have you ever lost anything of some value? I mean, when you do, there is a, a painstaking anxiety that sets up in the pit of your stomach at the forefront of your mind. Lynn was anxious. The evening manager checked, and uh, he could not find the purse. It was late in the evening, so she promised that she would be there the next day. By the time she got there the next day, there was a whole new staff, a new managerial team that was on call. Lynn tells the story that that night, uh, her little daughter prayed, Lord, help mommy find her purse. Next morning, Lynn went back to the restaurant, and she was searching. She even searched the shrubs outside of the restaurant, thinking that somebody nabbed the purse and took the money and the credit cards and then chunked the purse into the shrubs. She was knee deep into the shrubs, looking through everything, when all of a sudden the manager comes out. Ma'am, may I help you? She tells the story. And the daytime manager said, if you want me to, I'll be happy to look at the evening surveillance cameras and just see if we can catch anybody who may have taken your purse. Lynn was grateful. The manager went back in only moments later to return. She could tell by the look on his face that he had some good news and some bad news. The good news was we caught the culprit red-handed. He's right there on tape. The bad news? It was the assistant manager on the evening shift, a 28-year-old young man. The daytime manager promised Lynn um, this young man will be fired on the spot. And uh, if I were you, I would press charges against him. Lynn thought about that for a while. She could tell from the manager's description that that, that young man was caught red-handed. No defense, no alibi, no excuse. He was right there on the surveillance camera. If you were Lynn, what would you have done? I don't know very many Christians that would blame her for pressing charges. After all, it was determined that the, the, the value of the person, the contents in it, made this action a felony. So what would you have done? Would you have pressed charges? I know a lot of ladies, and y'all would have pressed charges, I can tell you that much. Because you would have thought, that's my purse, that's my belonging. I mean, the, those are the things that are valuable to me. Lynn thought about it. And she said, I, I, I don't know if I want to press charges, but I will tell you this. I want to have a conversation with that 28-year-old assistant manager. Once again, I think I know a lot of ladies who would want to have a conversation with that assistant manager. They arranged the conversation. In the process, Lynn asked him, why did you do that? He hemmed and hauled a bunch. And then he just said, I... I don't know, I, I just, uh, 
I needed to fill my car up with gas and I didn't have any money. And um, I took some of the money and went to patch a leaky tire. Lynn did not press charges, but I'll tell you what she did do. She introduced him to Jesus. She said, uh, have you ever been in church? No, ma'am, not, not often. You ever heard of Jesus? Oh, yeah, yeah, everybody knows about Jesus. She proceeded to tell him the sweet gospel of the Lord Jesus. How Jesus pardons criminals caught red-handed. i got to be honest with you, friends. I hear that story, and I, I'm a little bit blown away. That's a true story. That's not one of those preacher stories, all right? That's a true story. I didn't embellish it at all. Not that preachers embellish stories, but I didn't embellish that one at all. That is a true story. When I hear that story, I get blown away. Why? Because grace astounds me. I don't know if I'm wired that way. I don't know if you're wired that way. And, and, and truth be told, had she pressed charges, nobody would have blamed her. But instead... She said, let me show this man some grace. When I hear that story, when I think about Lynn, I come to this conclusion. That when it comes to um, God's grace, I am a criminal caught red-handed on this heavenly surveillance camera. I have no excuse, no alibi for my indecency and my disobedience. I... I have, I have no excuse as far as why i the wretched sinner that I am. And you have no excuse either. And God, in his infinite grace, says, I'm going to send Jesus to pardon all your criminal activity. I'm going I'm to send Jesus to forgive you of sin. It was John Piper who said that God is the highest value in the universe so that when we sin against him, we commit high treason. We are worthy of rejection. We are worthy of condemnation. We are worthy of punishment. And God, who never practiced double jeopardy, he came in the, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and God came uh, and wrapped the word in flesh, and Jesus took the punishment that we deserved, and God laid on him the condemnation of your life and mine for all of eternity. And God purely poured all of an eternity's worth of condemnation upon Jesus, and Jesus paid it all. So all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. I got to tell you that I'm astounded by grace. I'm amazed by it. And the grace that God has shown to me, I'm supposed to show to others. And a story like the story of Lynn Wilson brings that in vivid color that the grace of God transforms us so if we've received grace, we give grace to others. How can we say there is no condemnation? First and foremost, because by faith we are in Christ. Secondly, not only are we in Christ, but the Spirit of God dwells in us. This indwelling Spirit is mentioned twice in our passage, verse 9 and verse 11. This is a Spirit-saturated chapter. In 39 verses, the Spirit of God is mentioned no less than 19 times. If our problem 
is the indwelling sin of chapter 7. Our only solution is the indwelling spirit of God of chapter 8. And when that spirit dwells inside of you, believer, it does a number on you. Do you know what the spirit does? He enlightens your mind. He empowers your soul. He ensures your adoption. The spirit of God that dwells inside the believer of Christ, that spirit, it enlightens the mind. Revisit with me verse 5. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. Paul says that the sinful mind is set on sinful desires. The spiritual mind is set on what the Spirit desires. When the Spirit takes up residence in your life, it transforms your mindset so that the spiritual mind leads to life. The sinful mind leads to death. The spiritual mind is controlled by the Spirit of God. The sinful mind is controlled by self. The spiritual mind is submissive to God. The sinful mind is hostile towards God. That when the Spirit takes up residence in your life, that Spirit transforms how you think. It changes your mindset. The mindset is the ambition that drives you, the questions that consume you, the thoughts that dominate you, the beliefs that direct you. All of that makes up your mindset. You'll recall that in Romans chapter 1, Paul spoke of the depraved mind. In Romans chapter 12, he will speak of the transformed mind. You can't go from Romans chapter 1 to Romans chapter 12 without going through chapter 8. And friend, you can't go from the depraved mind to the transformed mind without going through the spirit-filled mind of chapter 8. The answer for the transformation of our mind is for us to give a spirit's control of our thoughts and our actions. For we are spirit-filled and spirit-controlled. When the Spirit of God takes up residence in your life, then he in, enlightens your mind. It's not that you think differently, therefore you're a Christian. No, you're a Christian, therefore you think differently. And also don't misunderstand the apostle. He is not saying that the sinful mind can never have a good thought. He's also not saying that the spiritual mind will never have a naughty idea. But he says the overarching mindset is as different as night and day. The overall mindset is enlightened. When you are a child of God, that spirit of God dwells inside of you. I like what John R.W. Stott said. He said that sin and the child of God are incompatible. It's not that they won't occasionally meet, but they just can't live together in harmony. Friend, that's the description of the Christian life. It's not that you won't sin, but when you do sin, you immediately repent of that sin. It's not that you don't have a bad thought, but the moment that, that thought flies across the screen of your mind, you evict it because you realize that the child of God and sin, they are incompatible. So you cannot have someone who says they're a child of God and they persist in rebellious sin. That's a biblical oxymoron. I didn't say they were a moron. I said it was a biblical oxymoron. You cannot have somebody who's filled with the Holy Spirit still persist 
in a lifestyle that's contrary to that spirit. Now, I know that God is gracious. I know that we can give story after story of godly people who have done ungodly things. And I know that the time of that ungodliness ranges. Sometimes it's short-lived. Other times it's a few months. Still other, it may be a year or two. And I cannot tell you how long a short term is. But I can tell you this much, that a person who is in Christ, a person who has the Spirit of God dwelling inside of them, they cannot persist in disobedience. That disobedience makes them uncomfortable. That disobedience makes them just unhinged. And them being uncomfortable in that disobedience can be some evidence that the Spirit of God resides inside of them. Sin and the child of God are incompatible. They might occasionally meet, but they cannot live together in harmony. When the Spirit takes up residence in your life, he enlightens the mind. The Spirit also empowers the soul. Look at verse 11. In verse 11, and if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, can I just stop right there? If the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, it's the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead that resides inside of you. And if that spirit who can cause a dead man to start breathing again, certainly that spirit can handle your sin, your temptation, your setback, your worry, your concern, your tragedy, your problem, your predicament, your health concern. I mean, if the spirit of God can raise Jesus from the dead, then surely he can handle your problem. Because the spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead is alive inside of you. We don't have multiple spirits with uh, an S at the end of it. We have one spirit of God. And it's not uh, a adult spirit and a junior spirit. No, it is the spirit of God. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead seals the heart and life of every born-again believer. Verse 11 If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also give give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Drop down to verse 13. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Friend, it's that spirit that empowers your soul. Empowers your soul into what? Empowers your soul into life. Empowers your soul to say yes to the Savior and no to sin. So that Paul says, we have to put to death the misdeeds of the body. This tells me that even for the believer, the believer will still struggle with occasional sin. Can I get a hearty amen? I mean, even though you're a Christian, that doesn't mean that you're sinless. You're declared innocent because of Christ's work, but you still, you labor, you you struggle, you wrestle with sin. And what Paul says is you need to put it to death. The actual word is mortify. It means to kill, slaughter, slay, execute. You don't make peace with your sin. You make war with your sin. You mortify your sin. The reformers, they spoke about 
putting to death your sin on a regular basis so that you're continually converted. They are not saying that you need to be saved over and over again, but what they are saying is that you subject yourself to the Spirit's leading continually so that you put to death, you mortify, you kill, you slaughter, you slay the misdeeds of the body. Jesus said, uh, if you're going to follow me, you've got to deny yourself. Deny yourself of what? Deny yourself of yourself. Deny yourself of your selfishness. Deny yourself of your pride. Deny yourself of the sin that so easily entangles you. You've got to deny yourself. Take up your cross daily and follow me. It's a, it's a war to be a Christian. But you already have the victory because you're in Christ by faith and the spirit dwells inside of you. And that spirit is so powerful. It raised Jesus from the dead so it can handle your mortified sin. So that every day we attend a funeral. You say, Pastor, that's morbid. No, every day when the alarm clock wakes you up, you say, God, I died of myself today. And as my feet hit the ground, I want you to know I am subject to your leading today. So Spirit of God, you tell me what you want me to say and I'll say it. You tell me what conversations to have and I will have them. You tell me where to go and I will go. You keep me from places I should not go and I will not go. You keep me from doing things that I ought not to do and I will not do them. I will be confined. I will be controlled. I will be subject to your spirit because it's your spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. It's your spirit that's given life to this mortal person. So Lord Jesus, you're in charge. So every day we attend a funeral. Every day, every day. We say, God, when my feet hit the floor, I'm yours because God has already been working all night long and he just wakes you up to catch you up with what he's doing and he invites you to come and follow him. How is it possible for us to mortify the sin of our life? Well, remember what Paul said in the Corinthian correspondence. We are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. So we follow him. It's this spirit that enlightens the mind and empowers the soul, it ensures your adoption. Look with me quickly at verse 15. For you do not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you receive the spirit of sonship. When the spirit dwells in you, Paul says, you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. Can I go out on a limb that I think is probably pretty sturdy this morning? There may be more than a few of you that over the last few days, Fear has crept into your spirit. Fearful of the future. Fearful of your finances. Fearful of what the culture may become. Fearful of decisions that have been made in this country. Fearful of things that are in advance. Fearful of things that are completely out of your control. Friend, when that type of fear begins to dominate our thinking, that is not from God. Because God did not give us a spirit of fear. We are not slaves of fear. Fear is a terrible taskmaster. And God did not give you a spirit of fear, but rather the spirit that dwells inside of you is a spirit that receives the spirit of sonship so that by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit that dwells inside of you, it ensures your adoption. It was F.F. Bruce who said that in the Roman culture of the first century, 
An adopted child was deliberately chosen by the adoptive father. The father deliberately chose the child to adopt. And in many cases, in that family, the adopted child received an abundance of affection from the father. Friend, Paul is saying in the very same way that you have been deliberately chosen by God Almighty. You have been sovereignly selected by God. Long before you accepted Christ, Christ accepted you. Long before you selected God, God selected you. He chose you before the very foundation of the world. He deliberately chose you to be his sons and his daughters, to be in his family. He deliberately chose you. And if we are adopted children of God, then our God has chosen us deliberately and he has cascaded upon us affection that is beyond all affection so that we have the spirit of sonship so that we cry out, Abba, Father. That word Abba, such a basic Greek word, such a basic word of antiquity. It's what a child would say when that child would crawl or or be brought or maybe walk up to Father and just, Abba, Abba. In a similar way in English, that we stand before our children and uh, we say, say mama, say dada, say mama, say dada. And there's kind of a competition that goes on. Which one is the child going to say first? And then the child responds, mama. And we go, oh, how brilliant our child is. No, the reason your child said that is because you spoon-fed the word right to them for the last several months. I mean, that's why they said mama and dada, because your child is looking up saying, well, that, that person must be my mama, and that person must be my dada, because that's what they always say to me every time they see me. So mama, dada, right? I mean, that's the most basic form of communication. And it's because we have chunked it inside of our children. In a similar way, God has said, You look to me and I am your daddy. I am your Abba. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'll never mistreat you. I'll never abandon you. You can trust me. I'm Abba, daddy. And so we come to God and the spirit inside of us, the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead says, God is Abba. He's daddy. He's adopted us. He has deliberately chosen us to be in his family. Some of you may know that my sister Alicia and her husband Steve have adopted four children from China. These four children are not biological children. Uh, Obviously to Steve and Alicia, they're not biological to each other. They have different Chinese moms and dads. All four of them came from four different provinces of China. My sister and and brother-in-law traveled over there on four different occasions to get these four children. And whenever I see Noah or Hannah or Elijah or Hope, I say to myself, you know, you may not realize this, but you were deliberately chosen. Steve and Alicia deliberately chose you. They adopted you because they wanted you. They wanted you to be part of the family. And by their deliberate selection of you, they have cascaded their affection upon you and by default, the affection of the entire family. So that uh, whenever we get together at the holidays, all the cousins just mingle one with the other. You can't really tell the difference between any of them. And I don't know, have you ever, 
Have you ever heard a person of Chinese descent speak with a Kentucky accent? I have. I will, in a very lovingly, loving way, say to my sister, you know you're raising Chinese rednecks. Because they weren't in the family very long before they started walking and talking and acting and speaking like Steve and Alicia. There are times that over the years that Hannah would cut her eyes at me and immediately my mind would go back to childhood and I remember how Alicia would cut her eyes at me if I did something or said something. And I, I realized that it didn't take very long to be in the family to start acting like the family in the same way you've been adopted into God's family. And if you're in the family very long, you'll start walking like Jesus and talking like Jesus. You'll start thinking like Jesus. You'll start reacting like Jesus. You'll start acting like Jesus so that people will say of you, you're a spitting image of the Father. And Jesus must be your big brother. What a great mistake people could make if they see us walking up and down the street and they said, hey, there goes Jesus. Oh, no, no, that's just the preacher. Hey, there goes Jesus. No, no, that's, that's just the school teacher. There goes Jesus. No, 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 that's just that attorney. There goes Jesus. No, no, it's not Jesus. That's the baseball coach. How great would it be if people looked at us and they said, you know what? You act and walk and talk and react just like I think Jesus would. You must be in Jesus' family. And the answer would be, absolutely. I've been adopted into his family. I've been rubbing elbows with Jesus for several decades now. And he's been rubbing off on me. And I just want to walk like him and talk like him and act like him and speak like him and think like him and, and respond like him. I just just want Jesus to stick out of me. Paul says, therefore, there is now no condemnation. How can he say that we have no punishment? How can he say there's not one shred of doom and gloom? The only way he can say it is because by faith we are in Christ. And because of God's power, the spirit of the Lord dwells inside of us. And that spirit does a number on us, brother and sister. It enlightens the mind. It empowers the soul. It ensures our salvation so that we can just say, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. This is my story and this is my song. I'll be praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story and this is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. This morning, church, if you're here listening to my voice and you've never accepted Jesus, you're outside of Christ. Today, by faith, will you trust that Jesus paid the sin debt for you? Your sin was nailed to the cross. He escorted to the grave. And on the third day, he was raised from the dead. Today can be the day of your salvation. I'll tell you what I want you to do. As soon as I stop preaching and we start singing, I want you to get up from your seat. I want you to come down and take a minister by the hand. And I want you to say, I need Jesus in my life. If you're tuning in live stream, the moment this live stream is over, will you please shoot me an email as directed at the bottom of your screen? And friend, if you are in Christ, then today I want you to praise him for no condemnation. 
Praise Jesus for the grace that he's given to you. For you are in Christ and the spirit dwells inside of you. But you just might have a family member, a friend, a coworker, a classmate who doesn't know Jesus. Maybe you just need to come to the altar and pray for them. Maybe you need to come today and join this church. Whatever it is, you respond in obedience to the leading of the Spirit of God. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. Please move. Help us to respond. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.